0: down on the response forms that they wanted to become a Christian, what had happened to them after one year? Well, unfortunately, after one year, they found that only one out of ten people who had filled out the response forms that they accepted Christ were still going to church. One out of ten, only one out of ten people in one year who had said they become Christian were still going to church. And what had happened was these people, instead of progressing in their faith, had gone backwards and had lost their faith and were no longer going to church. Now as we come to the book of uh, Philippians, I think uh, Paul was facing a similar situation. He was worried about the spiritual life of the people that he left behind. Now as we've seen over the last few weeks, um, the church in Philippi were facing various pressures. There was pressure from the outside, persecution, and uh, active persecution where people were going to jail and possibly dying. There was internal problems, problems of selfish behavior, disunity, and division. So last week, or the week before, if you remember this verse, very important verse, this one up here. It says, Paul wanted to remain alive and continue his ministry among them, so that they would progress in the faith, and that whatever happened, whether Paul came or not, they were to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this verse, verse 27, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, was the key verse that we learned last week. And basically it meant that they had to show themselves as Christians. Now, uh, a few years ago there was a Rugby World Cup. And I remember Australia lost very badly to France. And the commentators were saying that many of the Australian rugby players were not worthy of the jersey that they were wearing. Because, you know, they didn't pass properly, they didn't tackle properly, they didn't, you know, they dropped the ball. So they were not worthy of the, to wear the Australian rugby jersey. And I think that's what Paul was saying in those passages that we looked at last few weeks ago. That you must, as Christians, we must conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must act in a certain way. We're obligated to act in this way. And as we come to chapter twelve, chapter two, verse twelve, this is where it is connected to this part, because it says, "Therefore, if you have any encouragement from—oh, be- sorry, wrong one. That's verse one. It's verse twelve. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence but now much more my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear." And trembling. Now, what Paul is saying here with this therefore is he's not linking it back just to last week where, you know, Jesus was an example of humility and uh, tenderness and love, but he's linking it all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27, and he says, look, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and keep obeying what I'm saying. So, if you remember uh, last week, we saw how, Paul planted the church in Philippi between 49 to 52 AD. Okay, So if you look up here in this map, uh, around this second missionary journey, this is where uh, Paul planted the church. Well, 10 years later, he was writing from Rome in 62 AD. So what Paul is saying here was that when he was instructing the church, when he planted the church, they obeyed him and listened to him. 10 years later, when he was in jail and he'd been writing to them, they still listened to him. But now he wants them to continue to obey what he is teaching them about God's word and God speaking through him. But more than that, he wants them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now, work out your salvation does not mean that they have to add works to salvation. It doesn't mean they have to work their way to be saved. Okay, So if you look at this next picture, some Christians have the mistaken idea that as a Christian, I have to keep working in order to be saved. So some Catholics believe that, you know, I, I, I believe in Jesus Christ after I'm baptised, I must work some more in order to attain salvation. Okay, that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying work out your salvation. What he's really saying is, as a Christian, next slide, you're already 100% saved. You're already completely forgiven by God. You're already in the kingdom of God. Therefore, you must you must have an outworking, of your salvation, you must show in your life, in the outworkings of your life, the salvation that you've already received. Now I want you to think of it this way, suppose you get married, okay, you get married, and the moment you uh, have the wedding ceremony, and you say the words, I do, or I will, and especially after you sign your name, you know, on that marriage cert, and I mail it to the marriage uh, authorities, are you married? Yes, you're married, right? How many percent married are you? Are you only 90% married or 95% married? You're you're 100% married, right? The moment you sign it and you say, I do, you're 100% married. But you need to work out the implications of being married, right? Because once you are married, it means that you cannot live like before you were married. So, you know, the way that you brush your teeth and you always you know, leave your toothpaste everywhere and don't put the cap on, that has to change after you get married. You have to work out your married life. You know, the way that you go to the toilet and you don't lift up the toilet seat, that has to change after you get married, right? You have to work out the implications of your new state as being married. And the way that you relate to friends of the opposite sex, again, that has to change because of your new state of being married. And that's what Paul is saying here, as you are already saved in Jesus Christ. You must work out the implications of what that means in your daily life and everything we do. But he goes on to say that they must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What a strange phrase that is, right? Why do we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Is it because there's a risk that we could lose it? No. The reason why they have to work it out with fear and trembling is in verse thirteen. It says, For it is God who works. Oh no yet, not yet, not yet, not so fast feeling, really. sorry. Okay. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So what it means is when we work out our salvation, when we conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not through our power but it is God working in us to will, to give us the impulse to want to do the right thing and to act, to give us the power to carry it out. Now what a great and awesome privilege it is, right? That means the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit is working in us and we must fill us with a sense of awe and reverence because God is the one who empowers us with the impulse and the power to do His good purpose. At the same time, it is also a warning to us because when we choose not to do what God wants us to do, it cannot be because, oh, you know, I just don't have enough self-discipline, I don't feel like it, I'm very tired. It is because we are denying the Holy Spirit working in us. We choose not to walk step by step or in line with what what God wants us to do. Therefore, this instruction, right, work out your salvation, is is an imperative, is a commandment, is an instruction, it's not a suggestion or advice, you know, it might be a good idea to do this. We must, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in us and we cannot deny God in us. So I want you to think for a moment, are you 100% saved? The answer must be yes. Are we 100% in the kingdom of God? Yes. Are we 100% forgiven? Are we 100% children of God? Yes, we are. And therefore, God is working in each and every one of us here, without exception, to do His will and to act according to His good purpose. But when we choose not to do that, then we are actively stopping or preventing God's Holy Spirit working in us. We are choosing to deny and rebel against God. Is that you? Are you actively denying God willing and acting in you? Now, obviously, there are many ways in which we are to work out our salvation of fear and trembling. But here, in the situation, the church in Philippi, there are two main areas in which they are to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. So, in verse 14, this is the first area. Do everything... Without grumbling or arguing, okay. So that's the first thing that they're supposed to work out their salvation. They are to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, to be honest with you, that this commandment can be understood two ways, right? And I think two ways are faithful to what the Bible is saying. And I think both ways should be treated uh, seriously because it's not speculation, but it's what God says. The first one is. Do not complain or argue or grumble against God. Okay, when you do everything, don't complain and argue against God. And this one finds its uh, background in the Old Testament. So if you look here in Exodus chapter 16, the people in the wilderness, God's people, the Israelites, when they went into the wilderness and God was saving them to bring them to the promised land, they had a bad attitude. Right? They were always grumbling and moaning and complaining against God. So in verse 16, sorry, verse 6 of chapter 16 in Exodus, Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against Him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when He gives you meat to eat in the evening, and all the bread you want in the morning. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Okay, then the next one in Numbers chapter 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert your bodies will fall, every one of you twenty years old or more, who has counted the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb son of Jephunneh and Joshua son of Nun. Now here is a picture of God's people grumbling and complaining and arguing against God. And here Paul is applying this picture to the Christians. And I think that the context in the book of Philippians is that The people in Philippi were grumbling and complaining against God, probably because of the suffering that they were receiving in obeying God and living out their salvation. So they're probably complaining and saying to God, Oh God, you know, why is it so hard to be a Christian? Why do I have to suffer this way? Why is it as a Christian I have to do this and this and this? Why do I have to be good to my neighbor? Why do I have to be tender-hearted and and other person-centered in church? Why do I have to love uh, the people in church? But, God actually says that this is a great sin, isn't it? This is against working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because this is not the way that Christians or people in Christ are to act, to grumble against God. I wonder whether we grumble against God when we find it suffering to live a Christian life. So, I remember some people have said to me, oh, you know, why do I have to wait to get married to have premarital sex? You know, I'm I'm missing out. I'm suffering. All my friends are, are doing it. It's so unfair. Why do I have to be a Christian in the way that I work? You know, I'm missing out all these jobs. I'm missing out on promotions. Everybody else is playing politics and I can't do all these things. But who are you really grumbling against? You're grumbling against God, isn't it? You're grumbling against God because you don't want to work out your salvation. You don't want to do what you're supposed to do as a Christian. You don't want to act as a Christian. The second way of understanding this passage is not that they were just grumbling against God and arguing against God, but they were arguing against each other. So you remember last week in chapter 2, we saw that uh, one of the problems internally in the church in Philippi was a lack of love. All right, so in verse 3, Paul has said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather than humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each each of you to the interests of the others. So in the church in Philippi, one of the problems internally was that there was internal conflict. They were not loving one another, they were not serving one another, they were not being other person-centered. And here, Paul was saying to them, do not argue and fight with each other. Stop fighting with one another, right? Love one another, be tender-hearted to one another, be compassionate to one another, do everything without arguing and grumbling and complaining. Now I think that uh, part of the problem is that in their world and our world, our worldly identity tends to lend itself to being grumbling and whinging and moaning and complaining, right? So I mean think of one of the characteristics of Singaporeans. Right? Singaporeans are known to be, you know, very laid back, happy, you know, relax. Uh, I think that's Thai. Sorry, wrong one. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Singaporeans. We know we have known of being, you know, very complaining people, right? So uh if if you look at the next slide. Oh no, no, okay, don't I save this one, save this one, okay, save this one, okay, save this one, okay. So, I was reading a newspaper last week and uh, they were saying that uh, in this, there was one section about HR, Human Resource Management, right, about how in some workplaces, uh, there these people called destructive heroes. Destructive heroes, you can Google it, right? Apparently it's a term where there are people at work who are very productive, they do a job really well, but they're very destructive because they keep complaining and about other people, destroying them, undermining morale. So in this human resource section, uh, they were saying that actually if you have people like that at work, no matter how productive they are, they need to change or you need to get rid of them. Because no matter how productive they are, they're destroying the morale of the, of the uh, workplace with their complaining and their arguing and their divisive attitude. I was reading this book um, called Tricky People, okay, and it's about how to deal with horrible types before they ruin your life. And there's one section here called Blamers and Whingers. Okay? Since they complain about others, are frustrated with others, they're always pointing the finger, they're always moaning, they're always holding a grudge, they're always relentless in their complaining. It says, they can summon up a complaint on a fine day with a tailwind behind them and good fortune by their side. It doesn't matter how good things are, things will never be good enough for them. Right, so it says she not only expects the worst, but makes the worst of it when it happens. Okay, so I think there can be people in the world, isn't it? So anyway, in this book, it's quite interesting. There's actually accompanied this uh, cartoon which I thought was very funny. Uh, next slide. Yep. Hey. Um, yep. Okay. So uh, here's this person going to heaven, and they're complaining about something, right? Okay. And I think it's it's quite true, isn't it? That the problem is that. And the world that we live in, uh, next slide, we, we don't live in the world anymore, but we're united with Christ and we're children of God. And as children of God, we display that in the way that we, that we act. Okay, we're no longer living as the world is. Because the reality is that in the world that we live in, uh, people generally complain and bicker and argue and fight with one another. Especially in church, that's not the way that we are because that's not our identity. So, which one are you reflecting? Are you reflecting that you are a child of this world or are you reflecting that you are a child of God? Now, there's a logic to what Paul wants us to do, isn't it? Because he then goes on to say, look, do everything without arguing or grumbling so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Now, why are they supposed to be doing everything without grumbling, arguing? Because they are to be blameless and pure and to show that they are children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. You see, how important it is to be different from the world. If you go to any, uh, I guess you just go to any web page on the internet, go to any article where there's a comment section, you scroll down to the comments, there will always be people complaining about something, right? It could be about anything. Eh? The article could be the most innocent article about anything, sports, arts, movie, work, news. You go down to the comment section, people are complaining about something or other. But we are not meant to be like that, you see. We're not meant to be complainers and and moaners and whingers. But it says here we're supposed to be pure and blameless. We're supposed to be like stars shining in the sky, different from other people. Now one of the saddest stories that I ever um, came across, someone came to visit our church uh, a few years ago, And I asked him uh, why he was visiting our church and he said he was looking for a new church. And apparently what had happened was he had been invited by his friend to another church and he wasn't a Christian and he'd become a Christian in this church. But he was really stumbled because in his friend's church who he visited, there was lots of internal conflict people were always fighting with one another, arguing with one another, and he even told me that strangers would come up to him in the church and complain to him about other people. And as a result, he found it really hard to grow as a Christian, even though he, you know, here he was listening to the word of God, but he was getting stumbled by all these people, complaining to him about all sorts of things. See, if you look at this passage, it says there, that as Christians we are to shine in this warped and crooked generation like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So, actually, if you look at this next picture, right, we are either holding on firmly to the word of life and shining as stars, or, and in some translations actually are holding out the word of life to people. Okay, these are little Bibles, okay, if you can't see, right, <laughs> little Bibles. Okay. But what was happening is in this church that my, this stranger walked into our church to tell me about, Instead of the church members being stars and behaving differently from the rest of the world, holding on and holding out to the word of life, what was it like? It was like this. All the stars are gone, right? They were not behaving any differently at all. They were not shining like stars because they were acting like everybody else in this world. And they were arguing and bickering and fighting among themselves. And it stumbled this young Christian. But I think it gets worse than that because in verse 16... Look at what Paul says. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain? Now, first of all, it cannot be, he's obviously looking forward to Jesus coming, right? The day of Christ is when Jesus comes to judge people. Paul is not saying that he is worried that he will lose his salvation. He's not saying that, oh, you know, I'm really worried that uh, if you guys fall away, then uh, Jesus will be very unhappy with me and I will not be saved. That's not what he's saying at all. That is exactly not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's worried that on the last day when Jesus comes, he would have run and labored in vain because the Christians in the Philippian church would not make it to heaven with him. That, that is his worry. He's, he's worried that all this 10 years of labor, from 49 AD to 62 AD, that he's poured into the Christians at Philippi, will be go- wasted. There's no fruit to it. Now if you think about it, that means that Paul thinks that arguing and grumbling are very, very serious things. He actually regards that their grumbling and arguing can actually lead to them not making it to heaven. Now for us, that kind of blows our mind, right? Because it's not as if like He says, no, deal with the sexual immorality in your church or deal with the, the greed or whatever in your church. It's just, it's just grumbling and arguing, right? What's the big deal? But actually in God's eyes, if they do not repent of this grumbling and arguing either against him or against each other, Paul actually has a real genuine fear that he would have run and laboured in vain because they do not make it to heaven. That tells us that grumbling and arguing against God or against one another is a very, very serious thing. That it can actually disqualify you from salvation and that's what Paul fears. And I remember hearing a sermon by a pastor in England. And he shared about how there was a woman in his congregation in England who was going around his congregation grumbling and murmuring and and divisive and disputing and arguing and complaining. And he shared about how as far as he could tell, he had done nothing wrong and other people had done nothing wrong. So he met up with this woman and he told this woman, look, I must warn you, That if you keep this up, all this grumbling and murmuring and muttering and complaining and arguing, being divisive and disputing, that you are in great danger. That God may actually judge you and disqualify you from heaven because you keep doing this thing. So I think it's very serious what the Bible says here, right? To do everything without grumbling and arguing because... To continue this way would not be to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it would actually be going against what God wants. Now, verse 17 is something which is very hard to understand, but very important for us as well. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So too. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, what's happening here is uh, he's talking about drink offering. So it's kind of really deep. If you've done your Bible study, you'll know that this is, this verse is not sort of uh, addressed in the Bible study. But I think it's so important because it is the third instruction or command that he gives us. So Paul compares his life, right? we know he's in prison, we know that he might be given a death penalty, as being poured out like a drink offering. Now, the drink offering uh, was something that they were familiar with. If you look here at Numbers chapter 15, it says, The Lord said to Moses, uh, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, After you enter the land I am giving you as a home, uh, and you present to the Lord offerings made by fire from the herd or the flock, as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, whether burnt offerings or sacrifices, or for special vows or freewill offerings or festival offerings, then the one who brings his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil. With each lamb for the burnt offering of the sacrifice, prepare a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. With a ram, prepare a grain offering of two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hin of oil and a third of a hint of wine as a drink offering. Offer it as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. When you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice for a special vow or fellowship offering to the Lord, bring with the bull a grain offering of three tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hin of oil. Also bring half a hin of wine as a drink offering. It will be made an offering made by fire. Sorry, it will be an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now, if you look at this section, you'll see that uh, the drink offering is like an accompaniment to the main offering, right? So you have a bull have some wine with it, throw some wine in the fire. With the ram, you have a drink offering, right? So, you know, it's just like when you go to McDonald's, right, you, you, you know, you get, your, you get your burger and they always ask you if you want fries with that, right? Okay? You never have fries and they ask you if you want a burger with that, right? Okay? It doesn't work that way. You all, the, main, the main meal is the burger, not the fries, right? And that's what we are supposed to understand here as well. See, the drink offering is an accompaniment to the main offering. And that's what Paul is saying about his own life. He's saying, look, okay, I'm about to die maybe, I'm in prison, but I am not the main offering, right? I am the drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. So if you read verse 17 properly, he is like the accompaniment, the accompany offering, Together with the main offering, which is a sacrifice and service coming from the Philippian Christians. So, what he's saying is that he is, even though he's about to die, even though he is in prison, his death and sacrifice is just a small part of the greater sacrifice and service of the Philippian Christians. And because of this, this is an acceptable worship to God. And that's why he says, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And he says, you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, I think this is one of the hardest things for us to accept as Christians, right? When you suffer as a Christian, when you sacrifice as a Christian, how do you feel? You might feel resentful to God, you might feel angry, you might feel sad. But it says here to be glad and rejoice. And it's not an option, it's a command, right? Be glad and rejoice. How do you do that? Imagine if you were in Syria and you were forced to flee as a refugee because you're a Christian or you're in Iraq and you might face death because you're a Christian. How can you be glad and rejoice? Well, I think we can, isn't it? Because we see that it's part of an acceptable offering to God, our, our lives, our service and suffering is part of an acceptable sacrifice to God. And it's actually part of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's actually what God wants us to do. As Christians, God doesn't want us to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us to run away from our identity of Jesus Christ. He wants us to live out our identity of Jesus Christ, even if it means imprisonment and death. That is what really matters. And we can be glad and rejoice because we know that death is not the final thing. Remember what Paul said earlier, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I wonder whether we would listen to the instruction of God's word to be able to be glad and rejoice in the face of suffering or whether we will run away from suffering and lose our Christian identity. Someone gave me or lent me this book, a few years ago, I only just started reading It's about Hitler and uh, the Jews. and talks about a very, very real situation. A, a Christian man shared a story of how uh, he was in a church uh, during the Nazi Germany time. And their church was next to a railway line. And I guess uh, halfway through the war, on Sundays a train would run past the church during the service time. And as the train ran past the church, they would hear people crying out for help in the train. And they realized over time, every Sunday when the train went past, that it was these Jewish people who were being brought to be killed in the train. So what did they do? These people in the church who lived and worshipped in this uh, little church next to the train tracks. Well, they found it very distracting, right? Because, you know, when the pastor was preaching, the train would go past and there would be all these people crying out for help. All right. So, of course, people were not listening to the sermon. So, what they did was they, they, they planned it in such a way that every week when the train ran passed, they would be singing their hymns so that they wouldn't hear the people crying from the train. And then uh, this Christian guy looks back and he says that, you know, they they obviously did the wrong things because God didn't want them to be singing hymns when the train went past. God wanted them to actually do something about what was happening. But they didn't do anything because they were afraid of suffering for Jesus Christ. And I think that as we look at uh, God's word today, ultimately it was a struggle of identity, right? Did they see themselves First, as good Germans, or do they see themselves as first as Christians? And I think that as we recognize that being a Christian, being saved in Christ, a child of God, is our eternal identity, far above any identity, then we must be willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. That is an acceptable worship to God. So, what is your identity? As you come here today, what is your identity? Who do you see yourself as? If you see yourself as a Christian, you are 100% Christian. You are not 99%, 95%, 90 You are 100% Christian. You are totally saved in Christ Jesus. But you have an obligation to live that out. You have an obligation to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in you. And what it means is you must do everything without grumbling or complaining. Not complaining against God, or grumbling to God about why life is so hard as a Christian. To to do everything without grumbling and complaining against one another. And say, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to serve other people? Why do I have to love other people in this way? And we have an obligation as well to be willing, to be even glad, and to rejoice when we face suffering as Christians, and to continue to persevere in Christ, even in Suffering. Let's go to God and pray. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see what our true identity is. That our true identity is found in Christ, our true identity is found as children of God, and that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There must be an outworking of our identity in our daily lives and everything that we do. Oh God, help us to see that we need to do everything without grumbling and complaining against you, against one another. Help us not to be uh, like the world, divisive, fighting, arguing, petty, uh, tearing each other down. But help us to follow the example of Jesus, to love, to be tender-hearted, to be compassionate, to be humble, to be willing to serve others. Help us to see what Paul said so clearly and powerfully that our lives given in sacrifice and service and suffering is like a drink offering. It's like an offering, an acceptable worship given to you. That is the only right thing to do as we live as Christians before you. That we will never be ashamed of Jesus Christ in our life. That we will never